While occasionally referencing real-life people and events, the following is a work of historical fiction based on first-hand historical documents featuring both real and imagined dialogue and contains adult language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. That's going to do it for us tonight. I'm Henri Leverve. Tune in next Saturday night for another spine-tingling adventure in the Seven Stories Underground series from the twisted mind of Shredney Vashtak as Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air, in conjunction with Bolt Cola and WRBHK, proudly presents Bedlam. Step inside the nation's oldest asylum for imbeciles and the feeble-minded. From simpletons to stark raving lunatics, the story of what goes on inside the dimly lit halls of Bedlam's bug house is guaranteed to make the hair on the back of your neck stand straight up. Join us next week, if you dare. By 1955, the number of people living in psychiatric hospitals in the United States peaked at 560,000. Those living in asylums, often against their will, were subject to perverse experimentation and dehumanization. These are their stories. Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air, presented by Bolt Cola and WRBHK. I'm Henri Leverve, and tonight we have a tale so horrifying, so bone-chillingly frightening, that it's guaranteed to give you goose pimples. Back with us this week is the twisted little chap, Shrindy Vashtar, to present his latest thriller, Bedlam. Step inside the padded cells and narrow, crooked corridors of the nation's most infamous insane asylum, Bedlam. Parade through the crazies, the wackaloos, and the idiots that all call this godforsaken hellhole home. It's Bedlam. Okay, 
checking out. I'm Mrs. Katie Cooley, and you are? Miss Angla Shea. Hello, Miss Shea, and welcome to Bedlam. Oh, why, thank you. You will be what's referred to as Attendant One. The job is primarily custodial. You will be in charge of cleaning, feeding, and managing the wards. Such large wards. Yes, and filled to the brim. I saw a lot of people working the land as I walked in this morning. They looked like patients. That's because they were. You have patients doing landscaping? We have patients working the kitchens, cleaning, doing laundry, sewing, the blacksmith shop, even caring for other patients. Why? We don't have near enough staff to do everything that needs to be done. Patients who are well enough must do their fair share around here. Besides, it's part of occupational therapy. It's good for them. If they are well enough to work, then why aren't they discharged? (laughs) What's so funny? One does not simply just leave a place like this. Whatever do you mean? Once you're admitted, you're here for life. Their whole life? Their whole life. What do you do when a patient dies? We bury them. Where? Here, on the grounds. What? Surely you must contact their families first. Why bother? Because they might want to take the body back home to be buried. Because they love them. Because they care about them. If they cared about them, maybe they would visit. Maybe they wouldn't have been in such a hurry to get rid of them. Get rid of them? What do you mean, get rid of them? (laughs) You have much to learn, my dear. Anyway, here are your sleeping quarters. Small as it may be, I'm sure you'll come to find it satisfactory. It can get drafty up here, so I'd offer you more bedding, but we just don't have enough to go around. I'm sure I'll manage. Thank you. I'm told that you left your job as a social worker to come work here. Is that true? Yes, it is. You will not like it here. Good morning, Miss Shea. How'd you sleep your first night? Oh, not so good. I kept being woken up by screams. You'll get used to that. Now, I need you to feed, bathe, and change Mrs. Fletcher and Mrs. Wells. Then, once you're done with that, you can place them in their camisoles, and remember to chain them to the floor once you're done. What did they do to get here? Mrs. Fletcher's husband admitted her for believing she overheard a murder plot while trying to make a phone call, and Mrs. Wells was admitted by her mother after making a cross-country road trip to escape some phantom hitchhiker. Miss Shea, why are Mrs. Fletcher and Mrs. Wells not in their camisoles and chained to the floor? I thought they might like some sunshine, so I let them walk along the porch for a while. Walk along the porch? (laughs) That is not how we do things around here. But they were crouched like a dog on a leash, eating their fruit out of tin bowls. You were not hired to disobey direct orders. We have a hierarchy around here, and you, Miss Shea, are on the bottom rung. The camisoles and restraints are for their own good. But they are afraid. That's what we want. Nurse? That's why it's necessary to have God and the devil. So we can have someone to scare people with and make them behave themselves. Now go back and do as you're told. This is not the place to try and stick out. Fall in line, young lady. 
Okay, Mrs. Fletcher, I'm so sorry to have to do this, but I'm going to have to put this camisole on you. No, 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 no! Oh, please, Mrs. Fletcher, don't fight me. I won't. I won't put it on. Please, no straitjacket. Please don't kick, Mrs. Fletcher. I'm just trying to do my job. So your job is to tie me up and leave me to rot? What do you mean? You may be doing your job, but I'm the one that has to live like this. I thought that you were going to be different, but it turns out you're going to be just like everyone else in the snake pit. I want to help you. I truly do. But I'm afraid I have to follow orders. So do the Nazis. You follow current events? I did. I used to read the newspaper every morning. It always made me feel good to keep up with what was going on in the world. Like I was connected to it all. Ever since I've been here, I haven't been allowed to read the paper. This place is a stress test in isolation. I'm not even allowed to keep up with what's going on outside these walls. I'm so lost. What is your first name? Lucille. May I call you Lucille? You may. How about this, Lucille? Let's make a deal. If you agree to wear the camisole, I won't put the restraints on your hands and I'll bring you a paper to read every morning. You ain't funnin', are you? I would never. I don't know. I took you out for a walk earlier, didn't I? Oh. Oh, I guess so. Thank you. Beware of Mistress Crowley. Why's that? She's in league with Lucifer. You are listening to Bedlam, the last in Shredney Vashtar's Seven Stories Underground series as part of Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air, brought to you by the wonderful people at Bolt Cola and WRBHK. WRBHK is home to Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air. Tune in every Saturday night for thrilling adventures in the theater of the mind. Next week, we celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Orson Welles' landmark 1938 radio drama, War of the Worlds, with a special re-airing of that immortal classic right here on WRBHK at 8, 7 central. Now, back to Shredney Vashtar's Bedlam. Okay, Miss Shea, I'm going to need you and Mrs. Amber Lee to help Dr. McCormick and I with Mrs. Wells' insulin shock treatments. What is that? We put a tube in the patient's mouth and pour large amounts of insulin down their throat until they go into a coma. How many times do you do this? Usually 50 to 60 times. You intentionally put people in comas 50 to 60 times? Yes. Some people say it's over 60% successful in treating people with schizophrenia like Miss Wells here. Now, Miss Shea and Mrs. Amberley, I need the two of you to hold down Mrs. Wells' arms and I'll steady her head. Okay, Mrs. Wells, no squirming around this time or I'll have to bring out the leather straps. <coughs> Mrs. Wells? <coughs> Mrs. Wells, I'm just trying to help you. There's no point in being insubordinate. Hold her steady, Miss Shea. I'm trying. More firm. You must be more firm for this level of resistance. Miss Shea, grab the restraints. But I've had about enough of your disobedience, Miss Shea. How hard is it to do what you're told? Mrs. Wells doesn't like the restraints. Mrs. Wells is a simpleton who can't possibly know what's in her best interest. 
but she's a person! Yes, but some people are born to be a burden on the rest of us. Now, don't turn into one of those people and do what you're told! Dr. McCormick is in charge of all these patients, and you have wasted so much of his precious time. Did you see Cleveland won the World Series? I never cared for sports. I was more of a theater girl myself. Oh, yeah? Oh, yes. Look here. Frank Rosser's new musical, Where's Charlie, just opened on Broadway. It says here the musical's based on the 1892 play, Charlie's On. Tells the story of a budding romance of two young Oxford students. Oh, how I miss being able to go to the theater. You were a regular theater attendee? Yes. My husband and I never missed our Sunday matinee. You were right about Nurse Crowley. The way she talks about the patients here, right in front of them, it's dreadful. I know. I feel so helpless. Think of how we must feel. You're right. I'm sorry. Have you been given insulin shock therapy? Heavens no. I suppose I'm one of the luckier ones. If there is such a thing as luck to be had here. What do you mean, lucky? All they do is put a straitjacket on me and chain me to the floor. Is that not bad enough? Besides the slave labor and experimentation, some of us get beaten with coat hangers, broomsticks, or keys. Mistress Cruelly is the sickest of them all. She'll leave you black and blue. Oh, sweet heavens! They're racist, too. You know the black patients have to sleep on the floor? Surely there must be something that can be done. No, there isn't. No one is coming to save us. These places are not regulated or beholden to any government oversight. It's nobody's business to check on us or get us out of here. Oh, Miss Shay! Oh, I must be getting back to the nurse's station. Thank you for bringing me my newspaper. You'll be coming back, won't you? Yes. Good. It's just like somebody from heaven coming into hell just to see me. Miss Shay, right this minute! You called for me, Mrs. Crowley? Yes, Miss Shea. Mrs. Wells here has refused her insulin shock treatments this morning, and now she is refusing to eat. She needs to be punished. And you want me to do it? Why, yes, Miss Shea. You are in charge of her ward, which means that you are also in charge of disciplining. Did you ask her why she was refusing? That's not important. You can't expect valid reasoning from an imbecile. She lacks the basic cognitive functioning you and I possess to extrapolate thought. Eh, even if she could, we have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to non-compliance. How should I discipline her? We find that corporal punishment is sufficient in getting the results we desire. I don't want to strike her. Miss Shea, just how long is it going to take you to learn the ways in which we conduct ourselves here? I don't believe in violence. We have a system in place. A certain way of doing things that we know gets results. Punishments, although physical, are part of that plan. It's for their own good that we stick to that plan. We must never waver. If those in our care see us break from the rules, if we appear weak... All trust goes out the window and chaos envelops us. If that means making an example out of someone from time to time, then so be it. You must learn this right at this very moment. Punish Mrs. Wells. I won't. Miss Shay. I won't, I won't, I won't. You're listening to Bedlam. 
the last in Shredni Vashtar's Seven Stories Underground series as part of Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air. Brought to you by the wonderful people at WRBHK and Bolt Cola. Bolt Cola is a proud sponsor of Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air. Bolt Cola, that magical golden brown elixir that's as refreshing as it is satisfying. Pop open a bottle today and let Bolt Cola's fizzing bubbles and pleasing taste glide down your throat like an antidote to boredom. Looking for a pep in your step? Catch a jolt with Bolt Cola today. Now, back to the thrilling conclusion of Shredni Vashtar's Bedlam. Oh, Miss Shea, please come in and close the door behind you. Mrs. Cruley said that you wished to speak to me. I did. I understand that you've been having a hard time catching on to the way we do things around here. I suppose so. I caught on to that when we were working with Miss Wells, but I've come to find out that it goes further than that. You have refused to place patients in their camisoles and chains, and you refuse to discipline the patients in your ward? Oh, you heard about that? I'm the superintendent. I hear about everything that goes on in my hospital. I interviewed and hired you, so when I hear that you can't catch on, I know it's not for lack of intelligence. So why? Why are you having such a hard time catching on to this job? Forgive me for saying, but the system in place here is flawed. How so? This is not a place for therapeutic recovery. This is not the house of convalescence that I signed up for. What exactly did you think you were signing up for? Exactly that, a place for therapeutic recovery. And you don't think we're providing that? Not in even the slightest way. This is more like a prison. You leave people in straitjackets chained to the floor for days or weeks at a time. You force them to maintain the grounds or do menial labor for free. You stuff them into wards like sardines. You beat people who are disobedient and you use them to experiment on. You treat them like common criminals. Like you're punishing them for being sick. What else are we supposed to do? What? You said it yourself. We're overcrowded. We don't have nearly enough space or staff to handle so many people. Well, why do you take so many people in the first place? We don't have a choice. Families don't want to deal with them, and neither do the state. So they dump them onto us by the truckloads. Don't you want to help them? I do, but there's only so much we can do given our circumstances. But the cruel medical experiments. We don't know that much about the brain, how it works, or how it's even affecting our patients. Without proper treatments, there's little we can do to calm our patients other than custodial care. It's a desperate situation. Every once in a while, when something radical comes along that might help our patients, it's worth trying. What if you just try listening to your patients? They're not all mentally and physically incapacitated. Some of them are very bright and perceptive. I know. I feel bad. Trust me, I do. It's just not possible. It's simply not. Good morning, Lucille. Oh my goodness, Miss Shay. I feared that you had left us. Oh no, you couldn't get rid of me that easily. I was only on probation. Probation? What for? Insubordination. I'm surprised they didn't put you in a straitjacket and chain you to the floor. <laughs> oh, here is your morning paper, as per usual. Oh, my paper. Oh, Miss Shay, you haven't forgotten about me. I could never. 
Lucille, I have a question I was hoping you could help me answer. What's that, dear? Uh, well, and forgive me for intruding, but, uh... But what? I was just... I, I was just wondering what it was that brought you here in the first place. Oh, you were, weren't you? I was, and I know it's none of my business, and believe me, the last thing I want to do is pry, but you just seem so, so... So what, darling? So... sane. Oh, I see. Yes. I don't know, it's just, well, you and I both know that this place is filled with people who are very sick, and I know it's not right to compare people and their level of suffering, but you just seem so well put together. You're very perceptive, engaging, articulate. I just can't help but wonder what it was that brought you here in the first place. Nurse Crowley said that your husband admitted you for claiming to overhear some murder plot over the telephone? <laughs> What's so funny? Is it true? Of course it's not true, honey. That was the reason he gave, but it's not the truth. He heard the telephone story on some silly radio program. Why would he lie? Control. He insisted upon it. Well, what is the truth? There was someone else. <gasps> he took another lover? Yes. It's a lot easier to fool around with your wife out of the picture. How do you know? A woman always knows. Well, now I suppose she always does. He claimed that I was insane and was able to find two physicians to back him up, and voila. But that's not true. It's just not true. I know it's not true, but the truth doesn't matter. The state sides with families, especially if they have a little money and a couple of doctors in their back pocket. Why don't you petition the state? I can't. Once I was admitted, I became a ward of the state, and it became a life sentence. I wouldn't even be seen as competent enough to raise any objections. Once insane, always insane. I will die here and I will be buried here. But what about your family? Surely they must be up in arms over this. I have no family to be up in arms about. My husband cut me off from them when we got married. I was forbidden any contact with them. They have no idea where I went. How awful. How dreadfully, terribly awful. He never comes to visit. He never writes. It's like he's forgotten about me. I loved him. I thought he loved me. I really did. How can you love someone and then lock them away like this and just walk away as if they never cared? You've been listening to Bedlam. The last in Shredni Vashtar's Seven Stories Underground series as part of Venetian Autumn Theater of the Air. Brought to you by WRBHK and Bolt Cola. Nurse, Katie Cruley, voiced by Vicky Vola. English A, voiced by Norma Shearer. Lucille Fletcher, voiced by Loretta Young. Dr. McCormick, voiced by Kenny Baker. I'm Henri Levert. Wishing you a good night wherever you may be, and pleasant dreams of a better tomorrow. The number of people institutionalized in psychiatric hospitals in the United States reached its peak in 1955 with 558,239. In that same year, deinstitutionalization projects are the removal of people living in long term psychiatric facilities back into public society began. 
1994, the number of people institutionalized in U.S. public psychiatric hospitals had been reduced to 71,619 patients. As of 2014, there are roughly 170,000 residents in inpatient or other 24-hour residential treatment beds on any given night in America. While 170,000 may seem like a large number, it reflects a 64% decrease in psychiatric residents from 1970. When adjusted for growth in population since 1970, the decline in beds is even greater at 77.4%. Today, the largest mental health hospitals in the U.S. are prisons. Of the nearly 2 million people in the U.S. prison system in 2022, 64% of those in local jails, 54% of those in state prisons, and 45% of those in federal prisons have reported mental health concerns. Approximately half of the people in U.S. jails and over one-third of the people in U.S. prisons have been diagnosed with a mental health condition. This is compared to only 21% of the adult U.S. population that lived with a mental health condition in 2020. Prisons simply do not have the capabilities required to adequately treat their populations in need of mental health care. How did we get here? How has the U.S. been able to make such strides in decreasing the overall number of their population in full-time psychiatric care facilities despite an exponential increase in population and need for psychiatric care, while at the same time shifting responsibility of caring for those who live with mental illness to understaffed and overpopulated incarceration systems? The answer to this question requires an understanding of the long and often medieval approach of mental health care in the U.S. What to do with those who live with a mental illness is not a new question. Cures have been elusive, and society views those living with mental illness as a burden and has treated them as disposable. For centuries, families paid to confine relatives to, quote, madhouses, which provided inadequate shelter and custodial care, but little treatment. Dating back to the 18th century, the infamous Bedlam Hospital in England was a tourist attraction that locked patients in cells and had paying customers come through to gawk at patients who were treated no better than common criminals, a disturbing trend that continues through today. In these asylums, the lines between treatment and punishment often blurred with exorcisms, bloodletting, and the use of extreme mechanical devices becoming common practice. There were two schools of thought on such practices. The most popular was that this was exactly the correct course of action against such violent madness. Or, a less popular school of thought was that this practice was tantamount to intolerable cruelty. One person who saw these, quote, treatments as intolerably cruel was schoolteacher Dorothea Dix. In early 19th century Boston, Dix founded a school for girls and taught the poor for free. But her own struggles with depression led her to a new kind of treatment in England. There, she met Quakers who had founded their own alternative to madhouses called Took's Retreat. Named after Quaker William Tuke and based on his model of benevolent care known as moral treatment. Tenets of this approach to care involve trying to coax patients back to a sense of reality and encourage their ability to control themselves rather than being externally coerced. Inspired by moral treatment, 
Dix returned to the U.S. and worked at a women's prison where inmates were chained to concrete walls in unheated cells. Her outrage at such treatment led to the development of her nickname, Angel of the Madhouses. She began petitioning local, state, and federal governments to create facilities based on Tuke's retreat where patients would be treated as human. She was not permitted as a woman to present her ideas and relied on men to represent her arguments to government officials. In June 1948, Dix sent a proposal to Congress requesting a vast system of federally funded asylums. Her appeal was ultimately rejected. She went on to plead her case on a state-by-state basis and was successful at lobbying the state of Mississippi to allocate state funds to open a state-of-the-art asylum in 1855. Thomas Kirkbride, a Quaker doctor, laid out detailed plans that were the basis for many asylums across the country. The buildings had a distinctive bat-wing formation. The further you went out into the wings, the more extreme the cases became. Those who were most likely to soon return to the outside were kept closest to the main central administrative building where often the superintendent lived. To be as conducive to the therapeutic process as possible, buildings were built with large windows and high ceilings to let in as much natural light as possible, wide hallways for socializing, and large rooms for occupational therapy. With proper treatments of today yet to be developed, Staff focused on what they could do to calm the patients. Patients engaged in occupational therapies such as sewing and other works created through their hands. They were allowed to walk the vast grounds that the buildings occupied. Asylums were often located far into the country to promote a quiet environment. The goal of these institutions initially was to rehabilitate patients and then send them back out as productive members of society. Kirkbride was very specific in his instructions that these asylums were to hold no more than 250 patients. The American Civil War ravaged the nation. Resources were siphoned and drove thousands of traumatized people into asylums. This immediately caused hospitals to become greatly overcrowded and overwhelmingly under-resourced. Wards were typically segregated between men and women with men in charge of care for the men and women in charge of care for the women. In the case of southern asylums, black patients were segregated from white patients. Black patients were often forced to sleep on floors and died at twice the rate of white patients. Hundreds of thousands of patients entered these asylums, but with little to no treatment options available, the most staff could do was offer custodial care of housing and feeding. Most of the patients who were institutionalized never left. What was causing people to be institutionalized at such a rapid rate? Aside from the common mental health conditions we know of today, several other causes are known. Pellagra is a vitamin B3 deficiency that, if left untreated, can cause dementia. We know that nearly a quarter of asylum patients had syphilis sexually transmitted bacterial disease that, if left untreated, leads to psychosis. Patients could be admitted if a family member claimed that a person was insane and two physicians backed the claim. Asylums were not regulated by any oversight committee and their practices and treatments persisted without accountability. 
People who died in asylums were often buried on the grounds with no record of who they were and where they were laid to rest. Asylum patients were truly out of sight, out of mind, and then forgotten about. Some asylums housed 10 times more patients than their originally allocated space, with only one doctor in charge of hundreds of those in need. Doctors knew almost nothing about the brain and how to treat people with severe mental illness. To help solve overpopulation issues, state legislators began issuing funds to build expansion projects and even build super asylums to hold over 10,000 patients. Out of sight from the public, desperate doctors experimented with new treatments. The treatments that were attempted were based on speculation and often proved to be wrong. These treatments included wet packs, wet shock, hydrotherapy, hot boxes, malaria fever therapy, chemically induced seizures, and chemically induced comas. Institutions who promised families that they would cure their loved ones and failed to do so covered their lie by explaining that the patient was biologically defective, not fully human, and a degenerate. Francis Galton's eugenics theory categorized the mentally ill as inferior and therefore whittled out of the population. Beginning in the late 1920s, sweeping laws across the country allowed asylums to sterilize the mentally ill without their consent. This led to the sterilization of tens of thousands of asylum patients. With over half a million patients institutionalized by World War II, wards became human warehouses that forced people to live out their lives in hellholes. In this sense, anything you could do that might rescue them was worth trying. A popular theory at the time was that potentially severing the prefrontal lobe connection in the brain could interrupt people's so-called madness. Thus, ushered in the psychosurgery era of psychiatry, the most popular of which was the lobotomy. The originator of this procedure was a Portuguese neurologist, Dr. Antonio Agaz Moniz, who called them leukotomies. Dr. Walter Freeman and Dr. James Watts revolutionized and popularized the procedure in America, renaming it lobotomy. Results of this risky surgery were mixed at best. Some patients became well enough to leave the hospital and lead normal lives. Some only showed minimal improvement. Others were left permanently impaired. A number of people died from complications that developed during or after the procedure. Women were more likely to receive lobotomies than men. Some people were lobotomized more than once. Psychopharmacological advancements of the late 1940s and early 1950s once again revolutionized the field of psychiatry and would ultimately, finally, lead to deinstitutionalization projects. The serendipitous discovery of Thorazine and its practical and positive implications on the severely mentally ill led to a new theory of how their brains work. This antipsychotic alters the level of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain. While it's still not exactly known how changes in brain chemistry lead to changes in thoughts and behaviors, Thorazine in the 1950s allowed asylums to do the unthinkable, send patients home. These medications immediately reduced the need for mass institutionalization just as it reached its crest. 
Those who left the safety net of institutions suddenly had to find a place to go in a world that had forgotten them and were not welcoming them back. Former patients and advocates alike pushed for patchwork forms of community-based care but were met with refusals on many fronts. Fueled by the disastrous outcome of his sister Rosemary's time in state asylums, President John F. Kennedy called on his fellow citizens to treat those living with mental illness with more compassion. Congress passed the Community Mental Health Act of 1963 to fund the alternative programs patients and advocates initiated. This was to be Kennedy's last legislative victory as he was assassinated three weeks later. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed Medicaid into law to cover medical costs for low-income Americans. Psychiatric hospitals with more than 16 beds were not covered to steer money into community care and away from asylums. In 1975, the Supreme Court ruled that those living with mental illness could not be forcibly committed unless they posed a danger to themselves or others and allowed patients the right to refuse care. The dream of community-based treatment programs never came to fruition as the federal government refused to make durable financial investments into those community programs. The Ronald Reagan administration of the 1980s took the money that had been allocated for community-based mental health care and gave that money back to states in the form of block grants that the state could choose to use for their constituents living with mental illness, reduce taxes, or fund other programs such as building prisons. As money for community programs was defunded, money for prisons was increased as the treatment of the mentally ill began to echo the criminally punitive treatments of the past. During this time, incarceration rates went through the roof, especially for people of color. The irony being that people were never truly deinstitutionalized. They simply became homeless, placed in nursing homes, or incarcerated. States have routinely reduced the number of state psychiatric hospitals and available beds for those in psychiatric crises, making admission into such limited resources that much more difficult. African Americans are three times as likely to be diagnosed with a severe mental health condition, but only one out of three gets access to adequate mental health care following a diagnosis. Left untreated, mental illness worsens and increases a person's chances of entering the criminal justice system. Once there, they accumulate diagnoses from meeting with multiple psychiatrists who routinely adapt a previous diagnosis. For many, the most consistent mental health treatment they receive is in prisons. While closely monitored during incarceration, once a person leaves that system, There is no one to make sure that they are in compliance with their medication needs and following up on any issues they may be experiencing. Medication non-compliance post-incarceration leads to a reappearance of symptoms, followed by, often, the reappearance of the behaviors that led to the initial incarceration. The vicious cycle that is the current criminal deterrent and rehabilitation program of America is now complete. In America, the treatment of those living with mental illness has always swung between compassion and punishment. 
Heavy Head, Season 3, Episode 5, Are They Supposed to Be as Sick as You and Me, is written and produced by Tanner Hines. Andre Laferve, voiced by Lauren Hutton. Katie Cruley and Vicky Vola, voiced by Gretchen Soltz. Angela Shea and Norma Shearer, voiced by Erica Russell. Lucille Fletcher and Loretta Young, voiced by Tara Cavendu. Dr. McCormick and Kenny Baker, voiced by Tanner Hines. Narration and art design by Evan Virilli. Award-winning original music by Real Blue Heartache Kids. The music is available online wherever you buy or stream music. If you or a loved one is experiencing a psychiatric emergency and live in the United States, please text or call 988 or text HOME to 741-741 for free and confidential support 24-7-365 from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Crisis Text Line. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle at HeavyHeadPod. Subscribe to our official YouTube channel, HeavyHead Podcast. You can email us at HeavyHeadPod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the show, please share us with a loved one. Lastly, merch is available at heavyhead.bigcartel.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next month. Until then, take care of yourself.